All right, hi everybody. My name is Kelly Shepard and I'm going to be your host for this evening. Um, welcome to the Writers Guild of Alberta's online reading series. Tonight's reading features Beth Sanders, reading from her book, Nest City, How Citizens Serve Cities and Cities Serve Citizens. Um, I'm gonna introduce Beth shortly. I'm gonna do a little bit of housekeeping first. <clears throat> So this online reading is sponsored by Read Alberta. Um, and this is the statement for them. Spearheaded by the Book Publishers Association of Alberta. Read Alberta is a hub where Alberta's readers, authors, publishers, booksellers, and libraries can connect, support, and learn more about one another. We feature work by Alberta publishers and Alberta authors and illustrators in celebration of the distinct diverse voices coming out of our own province. Amidst a shared backdrop of prairie fields, windswept badlands, boreal forests, rolling foothills, and majestic mountains. Um, and also, before we get started, just an announcement. The next Writers Guild of Alberta online reading is going to be the last one of the year. It will be on Friday, November 5th at 7 p.m., featuring poet Micheline Mailer. <clears throat> All right, um, this is going to be the plan for the evening. I'm going to introduce Beth, and then she's going to do some readings, or a longer reading. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, and then we'll have time for questions afterwards, and we'll have a bit of a conversation. So without further ado, um, I'm happy to introduce Beth Sanders. Beth Sanders, MCP, RPP, which means Master of City Planning and Registered Professional Planner, is the author of Nest City, How Cities Serve Citizens and Citizens Serve Cities. She's an award-winning planner, including the International Integral City Mesh Worker of the Year in 2013. She has worked for municipalities across Western Canada, including as general manager of planning and development in Fort McMurray, in the heart of the oil sands, when it was the fastest growing municipality in North America in the mid 2000s. In 2007, she founded Populous to shepherd efforts to make city habitats that serve citizens well. So without further ado, um, welcome Beth. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much. So, um, so the book is is Nest City, and I feel as an Alberta reader, it's available in big bookstores. But I want to acknowledge the support of Audrey's Books and Glass Bookshop here in Edmonton, but also Shelf Life Books in Calgary. So, thank you, and a shout out to those local booksellers for for their support. And I'm going to start with a, a piece of a couple pieces of the introduction just to to frame my thinking a little bit. And then Kelly might have a couple questions or you folks will have a couple questions that Kelly can relay. And then there might be a couple of other little bits to read. So I'm going to start with how Nest City starts. One spring morning. 
My then 13-year-old son called to me to come to see the geese walking to school. I didn't respond right away and continued to fold laundry. He called again with more vigor, so I joined him beside his abandoned breakfast at the kitchen window. He wasn't joking. Two adult geese and five yellow goslings were making their way down the sidewalk. They crossed the road, turned a corner, and started to head down another street. This was usually the time when I head out for a walk to the ravine that runs through my neighborhood before I go to work, so I followed the geese. They seemed to know where they were going. Their route took them directly through a construction area where city contractors were fixing pipes and sidewalks and roads in our neighborhood. The geese stopped to tuck in between two houses along the way, perhaps because of the noise, the bustle, and vibration of the construction site and the heavy machinery. I zipped ahead to tip off one of the workers and instantly, this 20-year-old wanted to know where they were, spotted them, then went to talk to his boss. Before I knew it, the contractors stopped their work. Being geese, they didn't know that the road was closed. They waddled through the construction site while the workers watched in silence. The geese didn't know that the next two roads to cross were both four lanes of busy morning traffic. The 20-year-old construction worker, the 50-year-old construction boss, and I took it upon ourselves to step into traffic to clear their path. Drivers were raging mad, and then they were thrilled. We helped the city stop for a moment to make a safe crossing for the geese. We did not direct the geese. They knew where they were going. We just stepped out into traffic and followed our sense of direction as much as the geese did. We knew the initial reaction of the city would be the anger of morning commuters, yet knew it was the right thing to do. Sometimes what needs to be done, what needs is, sorry, sometimes what needs to be done, I'm screwing this up. (laughs) Sometimes what we need to be is an escort to clear the path. And the 50 year old construction boss walked the geese to the ravine and down the river to make sure they arrived safely and he followed a call from his heart. This notion of escort, being with what needs to happen or what wants to happen, but not making it happen is a new form of leadership. It is about letting what wants to happen happen. It's about revealing what wants to happen. It's a form of stewardship that does not protect and conserve, but rides alongside. It's a form of guiding that clears the way without directing the way. It's a form of leadership that understands that being part of something bigger than the personal, mine or yours, means following that something bigger. Moreover, it's a form of relationship that involves being in explicit relationship with something bigger. David White's The Three Marriages, Reimagining Self, Work and Relationship, articulates the relationships we each have with self, work, and a significant other, each coming with spoken and unspoken vows. As I read White's book, the voice inside my head kept calling out, there's a fourth marriage with community. There are spoken and unspoken vows in our relationships with the communities in which we live, our neighborhoods, towns, villages, and cities. What would it mean to be courageously smitten with our cities? What would it mean to have spoken and unspoken vows? 
with our cities. Just as the geese had a clear sense of direction and purpose, I believe our cities have a clear sense of purpose and direction to escort us where we are going. Just as the geese did not know precisely where they were going, they did know and we know they are going somewhere. They have a sense of direction and I believe if we tune in, we will find that we have a sense of direction too. The city nests we make for ourselves are not only a survival instinct, but an evolutionary instinct in action. The more we explore this relationship, the better. In return, our cities will serve us. Simply, our cities best serve us if they do more than help us survive and serve us in our own evolutionary improvement. There are two aspects of this relationship that make the latter possible. First, if we don't like our cities, it's up to us to get to work to improve them. And second, the cities we make for ourselves will never be complete. Our work will never be finished. We are in a relationship with our cities that is akin to a never ending quest, which means we will always be asked to improve the city around us, whether we want to or not. So what would happen if the energy we use to fight the city around us was instead redirected to its improvement? What if we considered the things that endlessly frustrate us and make us angry and sad about our cities as an invitation to grow into new possibilities? It's up to us to improve our cities. They aren't made by anybody else. And Kelly, I think I'll, I think I'll pause there. Okay, thank you. Um, I could start with a couple of questions right now, if you would like. Sure, and then I've got a couple of other chunks and if they, if they maybe help answer the question, I can offer those up and, and I'm happy to go back and forth and play it by ear. All right, okay. So one of the first questions I wanted to ask and because you just read that part about the geese, um, it brings you know birds to mind. So can you talk about the nest metaphor in your book? Um, I know it's a big question because you're, you're saying a lot about nests. Um, how is the city like a nest? Okay, I'm, I'm chuckling Kelly because I stopped reading and the very next, the top of the next paragraph is the nest as a metaphor for the city. <laughs> so maybe I'll just read a little bit because it's 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 right there and this is a this is a reading. So that works out perfectly. So the nest as a metaphor for the city and the ideas in this book offer insights at many nested scales. To start, imagine a nest you might make for yourself, a comfortable place where you feel safe. After a while, you might feel like it's time to leave, just as we often have the urge to leave home at 18 or leave our cities to explore the world at any age. A nest is also a place you can come back to as needed for food, rest, and comfort. I invite you to imagine your city as a nest too, a place that can both feel safe and a place from which to leap out into the world to do the work you are called to do. So I'll leave that with you, Kelly, but more fully as a, as a metaphor, part of what I was playing with is most species 
they, they live in a habitat, but they also do something in it to live in it, whether it's, you know, burrowing in for a nest or building a nest in a tree. But as humans, as a species, we also recreate the physical world around us to make a habitat for ourselves. So literally in the city, like we make houses, we make roads, we, we design to a degree our cities. Sometimes it feels unplanned, sometimes it is planned. But the city habitat that we've made for ourselves is made by us. At times, I don't necessarily feel like it's made by me because so much of the city is made by other humans. But as a collective, like it is a collective endeavor for us as a species where we have made it. Um, we're living in, in human settlements that have been made often for generations upon generations for millennia. Um, so there's often a really long story in a place where there's human settlement. But at the end of the day, it's, it's humans that turned it into a place to live when we, when we started to settle. Different cultures do it different ways. But when we land in a place and we make, we make our habitat, and even if we're moving around, it's still a big habitat in which we live and we have a relationship with it. We change it and then it in return is changing us. So there's that part of the, of the relationship too. Thank you. Um, what you've just said reminded me of another one of my questions, um, but it's also sort of taking it in a totally different direction away from the nest conversation. So that's okay. Um, but we might return to the nest conversation again later. <clears throat> so what you just said and throughout your book, you write a lot about our choices, um, our decisions to create the city sort of as we want it. And, and not necessarily we as individuals, like you said, as a collective, um, but still, I, I'm just curious about this because as somebody who's lived in Edmonton for quite a long time, and I think a lot of people might wonder this too, how much decision-making power does, do you think the average city dweller has? Like when it comes to this sort of, this work of making our nest, um, yeah, if that makes sense, how much, how much is the individual involved in that? Would you say? No, I can, I can make sense of that in a, in a few ways, Kelly. Um, one is you're hinting at scale, right? So what at the scale of just me as an individual, how much influence do I have? And then at the scale of all of us together, how much, how much influence do we have? Um, so that's one way to look at it. I'll go there. Um, and then the other way to look at it is just the different roles that we, we play when we participate in city life. Um, so when we think about the scale piece, um, one of the ways I look at the city is, so there's the scale of me, and then there's the scale, say, of my family or my neighborhood or the organization I work in or the scale of the city, the city region, all the way up to the planet. And one of the things that I have found is there's an absolute fundamental purpose of citizens in a city. And while it may seem small, the contributions we make, they are absolutely fundamental because what we do entirely shapes how we all experience the city. So if I choose to have 
<laughs> I'm like having a day or a week or a year when I'm really pissed off and angry and that's how I show up with everybody, I'm helping the city be an angry place. So I, I contribute to it. Or if I pay no attention to um, like at my home in my front yard, like if I make it beautiful, I contribute to the street being beautiful. So if I, if I, like those are just contributions we make and we might not even think about them or any of the work that we do fundament, fundamentally shapes the experience we all have of the city. And one of the examples I use kind of tongue in cheek and it's a bit tongue of cheek because I've had a lot of root canals <laughs> lately in, in my teeth, but I don't do my own dentistry anymore. So when I go to the dentist or an endodontist, they're providing a service for me in the city that I don't do on my own. So there's this big exchange of work and contributions, whether they're paid or unpaid, that we each as individuals contribute, whatever it is we do, whether it's paid or unpaid. And when we do that, we're changing, we're making the experience, the rest of the people in the city experience the city, even when we barely have contact or no contact with each other. So that would be one of the windows in I would have to, to your question, Kelly. The other is the notion of, um, one of the ideas that I'm, I'm playing with is there's four, and these are very general archetypal perspectives of the city. Um, one of them is the perspective or the role of the citizen. Another would be the role of our public institutions. So like our, our city hall, our civic government. A third one would be the role of the business community. And the fourth one would be the role of our community organizations. So our, um, our civil society, nonprofits, that kind of thing. And one of the lenses I'm looking at in the city is those four different perspectives have very different roles. They're typically in conflict with each other, but they're, they're kind of in place to provide different things to us, right? So we've just had a municipal election. So we've just, we've just elected the, the officials at City Hall who are elected officials and all of city administration works for those folks. So their job in a way is they set the rules that, you know, that we're going to abide by. They're going to allocate our financial resources that we pool in. So they're, they're making those kinds of decisions. The business community does a whole different kind of work. Like they might be physically out there building the city. They might be doing a whole bunch of creative, like innovative stuff. Not that nobody else does, but that's kind of largely what business does in a way is they invent new things to do. And then we've got our community organizations that might be one of the ways I look at them is it's like they're the conscience of the city. When we group in um, community organizations, whether it's a taxpayers association, like a ratepayer association, or it might be a group fighting for climate action. Those are the people that group up together to say, hey, everybody else, here's something we're not paying attention to, but we kind of should. Those are three very different roles, but they're all legitimate, even though they're often in conflict with each other. And then the fourth one is that citizen. Like, if the city doesn't work for us, then there's work for us to do to make it to make it better. And citizens who are who are going to tell us if it's not working. And when I say city here, I'm talking about the city habitat we make for ourselves, not the the city government. So that's a distinction that I often make. Most often when people say the city, they're thinking city hall. And I'm thinking about this larger community city city thing. 
I'll stop there, Kelly. All right. Thank you. No, that's great. Thank you. That, that was a really thorough answer. Um, I have a couple other questions, which again are kind of going off in different directions. So I don't know if you wanted to read more. Well, one or... of the readings was about the four voices. So I think that feels like it's covered off. So why don't, oh. yeah, go ahead and ask a, a question. Um, a couple of questions about, about the book itself. Okay. Um, for one thing, who should read Nest City? Who should read it? Who should read it? Well, who is your ideal audience for this book? Okay, so the first thing I'm going to say is not necessarily city planners. So I'm a city planner by profession, but I am I'm a firm believer that the the traditional linear way of city planning, I mean, it has its time and place, but it needs to turn into something else. But to turn into something else, we need the active participation in our communities of citizens, those community organizations, the business community, in addition to other people that might be at City Hall or in our school boards, like anybody who's looking after public funds locally. So I've noticed over the last number of years, there's a whole slew of people out there who are paying attention to what happens in their community and they wanna figure out how to how to do the dance to make things happen and they're really asking themselves the question like there's some sort of contribution here i can make in my work whether it's paid or unpaid and i want to do it so the audience is going to be in part those kind of city geek people or community geek people that are are wanting to try new things in the book there are some ways of looking at the systems of the city to help those people navigate it a little bit better or understand, oh, that's what's happening when these people are in conflict. It might be different values or they have different perspectives. And then ultimately what I'm what I'm inviting is people to lean into, okay, so the city needs improvement. That doesn't mean it's bad. It means it needs improvement. And if I want it to improve, I need to, I need to make a contribution, not because someone else says I need to make a contribution, but there's a bit of that inner journey around what is that contribution I'm wanting to make and then figuring out a way to do it. So that's a really long answer, Kelly. So I'm going to summarize down to those, those people out there that are just working as hard as they can to make the city better and are looking for some lenses, some tools, some perspectives that help them better understand how to slide into the, the systems in the city and work with them with ease rather than anxiety. Nice, interesting. Thank you. Um, also, I, I learned a new phrase, community geeks. <laughs> I, I didn't know about that before, so thank you for that. Um, I. I, I know what that means. Like I've I've recently moved into a new new neighborhood, like bought a house, bought my very first house. Um, and I know various friends who who are in sort of the same stage who like, this is my neighborhood now, not just I'm renting here, but this is now my neighborhood. And this whole other thing that opens up, right? Because there are community leaks and there are, you know, all, all different things happening that uh aren't really there for you when you're when you're more transient like I used to be for example um yeah so that's very interesting 
Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the book itself. Like, for one thing, because this is for the Writers Guild of Alberta, um, maybe we should talk a little bit about writing. Sure. Because that's always part of a conversation about a book, right? Is not only the content of the book, but what about the creation of the book? Um, so can you talk a little bit about how this book came to be? Um, maybe about your writing, your writing practice? Sure. Um, so when you did the introduction, you mentioned that I was working up in Fort McMurray and there was a, a moment in time where my family relocated to Edmonton. So I, I, I worked remotely for a while and then I just stopped and, and just did my own thing. And I have my own little consulting company. So that's kind of how that came about. But very early on, I was journaling like crazy. So this is about 14 years ago. I was journaling like crazy, just trying to make sense of things. And then my daughter, who's probably, well, yeah, she would have been nine at the time, you know, tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, mom, are you writing a book? And I was quick to say, nope, I'm just writing to figure out how I think and feel about things. And then 10 minutes later, I realized, oh, I am. <laughs> And then I'm thinking, like, I've never done this before. I mean, I've, I've written a lot professionally, like writing reports to city council in my former jobs and that kind of thing, but nothing like a book. And I had no idea what I was what I was doing. What's interesting is there's another book coming and the process is very much the same. So what it was then and it appears to be now is I would just like almost literally like when in that that intro bit that I wrote about going for a walk in the morning before I'd sit down to work I'd go for a walk with my journal go to the riverbank sit with my journal see what was brewing and usually it would turn into a blog post or something like that and then I would come back to my desk turn it into something publish it and then I just collected all those things or I'd be reading I was reading a ton and there'd be things that just catch my eye, but I didn't quite know why. So there was a very old school moment with a big table in my workspace where I printed everything and then kind of sorted and sifted and organized. And I had post-its and like, so this is about this. This is about this. This is about this. I love Microsoft Word and outline. I've been a fan of that for ever and ever and ever and ever. So eventually it became more digital and I could organize and then slow, it took, it took years before I had anything that resembled an outline. I had so much to do before I even had a table of contents. So, um, but that's what's happening again. And I know now to not fight it. I do, I do ask the universe for it to be more efficient time-wise because I, I don't want it to be a, a 13, year, 13 year process again. Um, but it was very much a process of, hmm, this is interesting. I'm going to write about that and see what it adds up to. And then I do that many times and then see what they add up to. And then what does that add up to? Right. And then look at it to see, well, what's it telling me? What am I telling myself to get the more higher order thoughts? So that's kind of the process. Nice. Interesting. Yeah, there's a there's a whole. I was almost going to say science, but I don't think it's a science at all. But there's a whole 
I don't know what art, I guess, to what you described, right? Putting the pages all over the table or putting pages all over a floor and then standing up on a ladder and looking down on it. You know, mm -hmm. these, these different things, um, the card catalog or the sticky notes or whatever is it's really interesting. And I know, I know what you mean about not wanting it to take 13 years, but, but there is something really beautiful about that, right? The super messy. Um, I don't know where this is going, but I'm just kind of going with it. Yeah. Like, and there's, there's passages in the, in the book that came like directly from the writing process. Like there's a, a passage. I want to see, if, I don't think I can find it right off the top of my head, but oh, it might be near the end. Let me see. Cause it was so moving when it happened. And it literally was an experience of the city that I had while I was writing, like in the writing process, but it was, it was very, very instructive. Two seconds. I know this is awful audience. <laughs> oh, I'm not one of those people that can, that has, uh, has what I wrote, like super nailed in my brain either. Anyway. Basically what happened is on one of my jaunts over to the river valley and just sort of take it all in. I was sitting there and way down below, very strange at like 9.30 in the afternoon was a, a class. If they were kids, it'd be normal, but they were like adult kids walking down in the bottom of the ravine below me. And, and I just watched them. And then one of them saw me way up high and waved. So I waved back. And then, and I just started crying. Like, it just felt so moving that somebody way down there would wave at me. And it was, maybe it was just like what was happening in, in life that day. But before I knew it, they had somehow circled up and then they were walking behind me and they're like, hey, city friend in there. And they, we had a quick little exchange. I'm like, thank you. Like that made my day, but there was just something like so warm about my city waving at me and I had a oh. choice about whether or not to wave back <clears throat> and wow. and there was there was there was something really instructive in that around what I was writing at the time about like let your city like somehow we have to let our city find us which hmm. means being open to that call to do the work that we're called to do, not from outside forces, but the whatever that thing is, is inside, that there'll be something in the city that rubs us the wrong way, that is somehow the signal to us that this is, this is mine to do. This is mine mm. to do. And in fact, what I found is like the city is just there for us to find those things to do. So then we're, we're improving ourselves and growing ourselves while at the same time we're changing how well the city works for, for other people. Because what I do might have an indirect or direct effect on, on others. I will never know, but, but it very likely does. And then at the end of the day, what I ended up crystallizing on was that when we do that work, like, like whether we're doing the work consciously or not, and whether it's feeding us well or not, it is the force that regenerates our cities because we're the ones who make the city. So it's in our hands to improve it. And the caveat like I had in, in the introduction is also the acceptance that it's never gonna be perfect. It's always a never ending quest because that's the job the city does for us, not the city, city hall, 
but the city community, the city habitat that we make for ourselves is we'll improve it. And then a new set of problems are going to arrive for us to work on. So then we'll improve it. And then a new set of challenges are going to surface right. and then we'll improve it. So we're growing and evolving together. Huh. So other questions are jumping into my mind, but at the same time, um, I'm conscious of time. Would you like to do more reading? Sure, let me see. Let me see what makes sense here. Maybe something about that little bit I was just saying about new work create cities. I've got two chunks. So let me I'll do one and then we'll see how we're how we're doing for time. Okay, so here's a an interesting little little chunk. Okay. The human journey continues to be sparked by thinking, making, and doing new things. Excuse me. Physicist Jeffrey West found that as a city grows, it becomes more innovative. A city 10 times the size of a neighboring city is 17 times more innovative. A metropolis 50 times bigger than a town is 130 times more innovative. Writer Stephen Johnson contends that the city propels and drives innovation because it is an environment that boosts creation, diffusion, and adoption of good ideas. His conclusion about West's work is this. In one crucial way, human-built cities broke from the patterns of biological life. As cities get bigger, they generate ideas at a faster clip. Despite all the noise and crowding and distraction, the average resident of a metropolis is more creative. As a species, we have an impulse to innovate, to seek new ideas and new ways of doing things. We strive to improve the quality of our lives and we do this in cities. Consider that innovation is simply new work and the constant generation of new work is how we adapt to our changing world. If our work stayed the same, our species would not have traveled and settled across the planet. New work, innovation, allows us to evolve. The habitats we build for ourselves have evolved with us, for they are the result of our new work. In cities, we learn and grow. We continue our quest to improve life. First and foremost, the work we do as individuals and as a species is about survival. We work to house, feed, and clothe our families and to meet recreational and material needs. But work, when we generate new ways of thinking, making, and doing, offers something larger. Opportunities for self, family, neighborhood, city, nation, and species to adapt to the changing world. Work is ubiquitous. We work all day every day, paid or unpaid, work is simply what we do as we make our way through life. It may be hard, a drudgery or a grind. When something succeeds or functions well, we say it works. To get the results we seek, we need to be willing to put in effort and work at it. We have a desire to work things through so they work better, perhaps more easily. The truth is work is a workout. Our work is what we offer the world, whether to make ends meet or because we love doing what we do. We each offer knowledge and skills to others who in turn offer us both the goods and services we need and opportunities to do our work. 
When we search for new work, it becomes a learning impulse, a desire to find new and better ways of doing things that are of interest and offer improvement. If we choose, we develop newness in our cities. Writer and city activist Jane Jacobs termed this relationship between our work in the world, our economic life. It's an economic exchange. And I think I'll pause there, Kelly. Wow, that was great. Thank you. That's really interesting. Um, now I'm almost kind of lost because I have questions from the previous conversation and now more questions. Um, yeah, so I like what you say about work because work doesn't mean only work in the sense of the nine to five or the, you know, paying the bills. It is that, but it's more than that. Um, like you said, it's, it's sort of what we do. It's just sort of our thing. Um, yeah, I mean, another, another word that I often use, because sometimes people get hung up on, on work because we have so much attached to it. Like usually it's paid for, or like you get paid for it rather. So the other way that might be more neutral is to think of it as what is it the contribution that we make? And there's an exchange we're all making with each other with our contributions. So if I shovel my neighbor's sidewalk in the winter, that's a contribution. Um, he, he in turn um, delivers me treats and sweets, right? Like, so there's, that's a simple exchange of, of contribution that we, we experience of each other right in close, you know, with my neighbor. But there's a whole range of other contributions that we make, whether we're volunteering or it's the work that we do. It could be for a split second or it could be a lifelong kind of contribution. But we're always contributing something. And then how conscious are we of what it is that we're contributing? And how conscious are we of the contributions of others that shape our, our experience, often for the better, sometimes not? And so this is another thought that I just had, but this could open up a whole other conversation, which we might not even have time for. But it's interesting, um, you lived in Fort McMurray, you live in Edmonton. These are relatively new cities, um, you know, in the big picture, um, compared to cities in, in Europe and Asia and so on, which are much, much older often. So this, this sort of the layers of human contributions and work that have been happening um, in a city like Fort McMurray, which has been officially a city for a pretty short period of time, compared to a city like you know, New York or a city like London or Seoul, et cetera. Um, yeah, that's just a really interesting perspective, I think, is that layers have been built upon layers over time, right? For better or worse, I guess. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And then, I mean, for sure in, in Edmonton and, and Fort McMurray, and I started my planning work in Brandon, Manitoba, um, it's always important to remember that people have lived here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So Edmonton was a, a meeting place for a very long time before settlers arrived and started turning it into, into a town and a city. So that history does reach way back. I think your point is, is the built form that we recognize in Edmonton is relatively 
right. you know, uh, as a city. Yeah, my kids, my kids to this day howl at me when at the moment when we were in Dublin, Ireland. And so it's old and I spent the whole time like trying to see in the built form, like, well, where was medieval Ireland? Like where was D Dublin rather? Cause this was a whole new thing for me, like to actually like tangibly be in a, like a built form that was medieval with the roads going all over everywhere. Yeah. Cause I grew up in Canadian prairies, right? So, so you can't physically see it, but there was a moment where on a sidewalk, the landscape architects so the urban designers had left a marker in the sidewalk so it kind of was like jagged but it was the wall it was where the wall was and oh. they left a clue in a marker like some bricks in the in the sidewalk so when you're walking along you're like oh hang on a second here's the wall so I had one of those like moments where my <laughs> Brains sparking and my kids are laughing because I just stood there going, oh, this is where the wall is. This is what I've been looking for. But it it was an indicator to me that what I really know are some very simple things about cities, but where it all crystallized for me as a city, as a, as a prairie kid was in St. John's and I was there for a conference and there's a bit of the St. John's story in the, in the book where there was a moment where I was just sitting on a on a dock in the St. John's Port Authority and there was this Karen kind of thing there so I'm like well what does that say you know I don't know St. John's I'm going to go see what this historic marker says and it was celebrating the 500 year anniversary of the St. John's Port Authority and I had another one of those moments where <laughs> my brain's going like I'm like does not compute does not compute like for built environment that we would recognize today in Edmonton does not go back that far and then I was in the in the rooms where their museum archive stuff is, and on the wall there was a, some old land titles. And this is where the planner geek in me comes out, because our land title, if you have a title to land, it's going to tell you lot block plan, or in the old days it would say to the high water mark of a of a river or a creek or something. And it, so it's not defined, but it just says to the high water mark. In St. John's Newfoundland, it says to the back of the fish flakes. So again, so this is just a whole other context, but it really started me digging into, well, what, how did St. John start? So there, like, and what were the, what were the conditions? Because all human settlements will start because there's fresh water and there's a means for shelter and there's something to trade. That's the third thing is, is usually in play if it's going to be a, a community that grows. So while there you were, there it was in, in St. John's and it all just kind of the layers all fell into piece into place rather about how it all grew and evolved and what were the different priorities and values over time. And then now they're all there. So it was it was definitely travel for me was needed to see some things that I I, I could see in Edmonton or in Brandon when I was working or in Fort McMurray, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite fully see. I had to be away to be able to yeah. see it more clearly there so that I could see it here. But in yeah. some of those instances, like St. John's, there was a story there that wasn't here because it's older and we're newer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know what you mean about travel, um, serving that purpose, right? Travel sort of opening things up. Yeah. Because we're 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 quite blind to our own surroundings, right? We're not tourists in our own towns. 
generally. Yeah. Um, so we're, I think we're almost out of time. Not, not to cut you off, but uh, would you like to have the last word? Would you like to talk a little bit more about the book itself or do another short reading? I have, I have a short reading in front of me. It's just a, like two and a half paragraphs. So it feels like a, a good way to close. So here it is. When people ask me what I do, I find myself saying that by profession, I'm a city planner. And as a citizen, I am also a city planner. It turns out that as a volunteer with my neighborhood community league, I'm also a city planner. Even as a small business owner, I'm a city planner. My version of city planning is not just to figure out where the streets and buildings go or what kind of land use bylaw applies to a neighborhood. To me, city planning captures all of the choices we make as citizens, whether we reside in the city or rural areas, in between or in the north or other remote areas. We make choices everywhere as elected officials, lawyers, coaches, parents, janitors, children, activists, religious leaders, secretaries, artists, and volunteers. In all walks of life, our choices influence the place we live economically, socially, and physically. How we shape our cities and how our cities in turn shape us. I see a new possibility where as citizens and cities, we make choices that have a clear purpose, are clear about what we will learn together as we work toward that purpose, and are clear that we wish to be in relationship with one another in order to sustain what we build. This is the ultimate commitment we make to each other, to sustain life in a way that allows us to look after ourselves, each other, and the places we live. Without a place to live and fully be ourselves with others, we do not live, let alone thrive. City planning involves far more than city hall. When we are self-aware and engage with others to make decisions, we affect our city's well-being and directly impact what we get in return from our city. And with that, Kelly, I'll, I'll leave it there. People want to learn more about the, the book. Um, there's a whole bunch of other writing I do. I've got a blog series on my website. So that's bethsanders.ca. And there's a little podcast there, some fun experimentation. And people can learn more about what's happening at bethsanders.ca. All right. Thank you very much, Beth. Um, I don't want to stop this conversation. I feel like there's a whole bunch more I want to talk about. But that'll have to wait for a later date. All right, so I guess, um, thanks very much again. Um, nice meeting you, Beth. Nice meeting you too, Kelly. Um, this was great, I really, I really enjoyed it and nice to hear more about your book and what you're doing. And yeah, um, I think I'll say maybe one last, just a reminder what I said at the beginning, that there is another, another Writers Guild of Alberta reading coming up next month, November 5 featuring the poet Micheline Mailer. With that, I guess we will we'll wrap this up. Thanks very much, Beth. Thank you.